if you'd like to open a Bible there, uh, or if you'd... Uh, that's kind of strange, Jay, over there on the left. I don't know what's happening there. But uh, I want to look at uh, some verses from John chapter 4. Um, John chapter 4 is a chapter where Jesus has a conversation with a, uh, a woman who comes to draw water in the middle of the day. We, we call it the, the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. Jesus obviously was Jewish. It leads to a conversation about, about worship and about uh, the fact he offers her living water. Y'all know this story, right? And uh, she, she comes to believe in him as, as the Messiah. And then she goes back to her village, to the nearby town. <clears throat> and I want us to look for a few minutes at what happened with a revival or awakening or whatever we want to call it that took place in her town because of her testimony. Let me read to you beginning in verse 27, and then I, I put some verses up here that are the, the latter part of, of the chapter. And now this is after she has, uh, Jesus has talked to her and gone through all that about living water. And then in verse 27 it says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Uh, anyway, Jesus talks to them. Then she goes back uh, to her to her town, and in verse 39 it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said, we no longer, he said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is a savior of the world. Now, the woman has been, she, she has come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And we know that story. She came to the well to fill these pots. She's lived a, an unusual life. She's been involved with a, a number of men, a number of husbands. And you have to, in reading between the lines, the pots that she fills with water also, in a sense, are symbolic that her life is still empty also. And Jesus offers her living water. He offers her what she's been looking for through relationships that have failed to deliver, and that is life with God and true life that would quench the thirst of her soul. And he talks to her, and she comes to believe. And as a result of her conversion, she goes back to her town. She tells the men of her town, and it tells us right there in the passage, verse 39, many of the Samaritans believe. It's a wonderful account of a spiritual awakening right there in the New Testament. In fact, this is actually the first account we have of a spiritual awakening in the New Testament. And it's what we would call a revival or an awakening. And that's not the kind of revival that's announced on a church marquee that says on Wednesday through Sunday this week there'll be a revival at 7 p.m. Uh, that's, that's, not a re that's not necessarily a revival at all. I don't know whatever it is, but here's a definition that's, that's pretty much understood for what a revival is. A revival or awakening is a sovereign work of God where he quickens not just one, but many all at once. And he brings them into a living and vital relationship with himself and at the same time stirs the hearts of his people that they might be aflame with love and zeal for him. 
Now that's, a, uh, that's kind of a formal definition of what a revival or an awakening is, where many people are brought to faith at one time, and at the same time, believers grow much more in their commitment to Christ. So those two things almost happen simultaneously in a real revival or awakening, and that's what happens in this woman's town. What kind of people does God use for revival to happen? Well, I'm just going to use, make a couple of simple points with this woman's life. Uh, here's a single woman, a solitary woman whose life has been dramatically turned around. She's found Christ. She's found living water. And so what was her technique? What was it that she did, humanly speaking, that might have brought this about? Well, she had no technique. But from what we know in this brief account, she did some simple things. First, verse 29 9 says she pointed them to Jesus. She said, come see a man who told me all the things that I had done. Uh, and he, she had done a, a lot of things. And perhaps some of you have a similar testimony to the one that that woman uh, had. And Jesus found you just like he found her. And so she says, come see a man who told me all the things I had done. Surely this is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected Savior. And so that's the first thing she did. She pointed people to Jesus. The second thing is that she told people what Jesus had done for her. Um, she said, this is the man who told me everything I ever did. Uh, she's telling everyone that, that here is someone who has helped me a great deal. And if you come to him, in a sense, she's saying, you'll find that he can help you like she helped me. So no, no uh, great Bible knowledge at this point. Uh, she's not had any training on evangelism. She doesn't have a, a Ph.D. in philosophy and biblical apologetics. She's not had 20 years now to study the Bible and to prepare. She just told others what Jesus had done for her. And also it says that she did it out of a full heart. So I think... Those are the only, that's the only two things we can observe. The woman went, pointed them to Jesus, and said, let me tell you what he did for me. And so it's a great testimony. Uh, some of us, some of you here, maybe have testimonies that will hold people's attention. Other of us uh, don't. Uh, this woman obviously had a, uh, a, a testimony in that they, they knew her. And I want you to see the effects of this revival uh, the, re the results are glorious, but they were very, very simple. Because what happened in this woman's life happened also to the community. Um, she experienced transformation, and now many, many others, it says in these verses, verse 39 and following, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now when they go, it said they came to him and urged him to stay with them. And that, now that's, that's part of revival. They want to have Jesus to stay with them. That's a good sign. Uh, they thought that an hour or two, one day, one day a week was not enough. They wanted him there all the time. They had not had enough of Jesus. They wanted him to stay. Now I want to tell you about a different revival uh, that some of you know about. Some of you know very little about this, but it's, it was what we look back at and is often called in American life the Third Great Awakening. Um, it was a, an awakening that took place in 1857 and 1858. When we think of how God has blessed us as a nation, we ought to uh, 
We ought to be thankful for how he's also, what he's done spiritually in our past. Historians point out three great awakenings in our history. The first was in the early 1700s in colonial America, and it was influenced by the preaching of a man named George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. The second great awakening was in the latter part of the 1700s and early 1800s. But many believe the most powerful spiritual awakening that has ever taken place in our American history happened in 1857 and 1858. Our church sanctuary was constructed in 1858. So that kind of gives you an idea, at least as far as a building from the past, of what happened at that time. Let me tell you a little bit about America prior to that awakening, what, what it was like. In the 12 years before the Third Great Awakening, when we get into the uh, 1840s, um, the religious life in America was on the decline. It was a time of prosperity. Uh, People were very materialistic. They were seeking and making lots of money in many places. The the churches uh, were losing people. There was pervasive worldliness and materialism. And a number of Christians throughout the country not networked in any way, were very concerned about the spiritual state of the nation. And they were very concerned that the young people were growing up without God. And so they began to pray that God would break the love of money over people's lives, that he would send another awakening. And so prayer meetings what you might call concerts of prayer, that means concerted prayer efforts of numbers of believers coming together, began to just spring up, first in Canada and then in the United States. Now, this was this materialism that that was so pervasive was broken in many lives with something that happened. It was a bank crash, the bank panic of October 1857. There had been a long, hard winter. Transportation and trade transactions were delayed. And before September of 1857, the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company of Cincinnati, it failed, and it sent ripple ripple effects throughout the economy. Then one month later, in October of 1857, on October 14th, the banking system of the United States collapsed. It, It brought disaster to thousands of people. Uh, It caused rich people to go broke literally overnight. Suicide and murder increased. And some felt even then that this this collapse of the banking system in the U.S. was divine judgment. (laughs) And Samuel Prime, who was the chief editor of the Daily New York Observer, felt, quote, as long as men transact business on unsound principle, they will be punished. The law of trade as well as of the law of God, necessitates such a penalty. Well, some of the people that in our recent past have studied revivals like J. Edwin Orr, he's he's probably done more writing on the history of revivals than anyone else. He did not think that the, the revival I'm getting ready to tell you about was caused by the economic panic because some of the prayer meetings that I'm going to describe to you started taking place in the spring of 1857, and the bank crash didn't occur until September-October of 1857. Here's how it really began from what on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, 
it began in Canada. Uh, in 1857, in Hamilton, which is in Canada, the western part of Canada, there were some Methodist uh, evangelists, a man and his wife. Both, both were preachers. And they began to see unusual fruit at some of these evangelistic meetings where 20 to 45 professions a day were being made where there had been almost nothing before in some of these meetings. And they wrote, the work is taking its range, persons of all classes, men of low degree, men of high esteem, of wealth and position, old men and maidens, little children, can be seen humbly kneeling together, pleading for grace. The mayor of the city with other people were not ashamed to be seen bowed at the altar prayer beside the humble servant. And so this spontaneous revival began to sweep entire communities in western Canada. And the next year, all denominations began to report these rising numbers of statistics of, of membership. Now, we think that's what precluded what happened in America. Um, but it was happening in all denominations, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists. And many point to uh, what happened in New York City uh, as the starting point. But I, from what I've read and others say, I want to tell you about one thing that happened uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. This is a picture of John Gerardo. He was a pastor of the Zion Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He went there in 1854. When he got there as a pastor, it was an all-black church. He, he was called the Spurgeon of the South. He was such a great preacher. He continually turned down invitations to pastor uh, churches of high esteem and so forth because he wanted to preach there uh, to that congregation. So it started with 35 when he arrived there. And then by the time I'm getting ready to describe to you what happened in, in uh, 1857, it, it was up over 1,000 people just three years after the, that time. Um, most black slaves had their own churches with mostly white leaders. Um, and so Zion Church was in the heart of Charleston. And in 1857, they began to have prayer meetings petitioning God to send a spiritual awakening and waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was a, uh, so that was their intention. They weren't experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but they were praying that God might do that. Now, one evening they're at a prayer meeting, and Jerido, and I've read this account numerous times, so I'm just going to give you the brief, brief part of it. They're having a prayer meeting. He's not preaching or anything, but he was leading the group in prayer at that time, and he said, and this is a Presbyterian, a very heady Presbyterian, okay? He said he felt as though there was a surge of electricity that had struck his head and gone through his entire body, and then he said to the congregation that was there, the Holy Spirit has come. We will begin preaching tomorrow evening, and he dismissed the congregation basically telling them to come back the, uh, the next night. When he dismissed them, they all sat down, basically saying, we're not leaving. And so he began exhorting them to believe in Christ, to accept the gospel. And there was great emotional outbursts, sobbing. They said it was softly like the falling rain, then with deeper emotion, then weeping bitterly, and then beginning to rejoice loudly. 
according to their circumstances. Now, this happened, I think, around 8 or 9 p.m. He was finally able to dismiss them at midnight. The next night, they came back, and the numbers just increased and increased and increased. And every night for eight weeks, this went on. And he preached on sin and repentance, and the crowds got up between 1,500 and 2,000 people. Uh, white people, black people, conversions, no distinctions of what was happening. The same thing began happening in churches in Tennessee and in Iowa and in California and in Connecticut and Virginia and in New England as well as other states all began to report spiritual outpourings. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and most of the other denominations all reported an increase that all went back about to the same time in 1857. Now, by the way, all that's left of Zion Church today is a marker in Charleston next to a Holiday Inn where the building was. Okay. Now, here's what happened in New York, and, and typically people point to this person as the, the kind of spearhead for the whole revival that, that started. In the middle of September of 1857, there was a tall man, quote, with a pleasant face and an affectionate manner who was shrewd and endowed with much tact and common sense. He was a layman, and he began to pass out these little handbills. I read the text of it. Basically like a half page of paper with some words on the front, words on the back, and asking people to meet for prayer. And he intentionally was targeting businessmen. And he said, the meeting is intended to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and to call on God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. It will continue for one hour, but it is designed for those who find it inconvenient to remain more than five or ten minutes, as well as for those who can spare a whole hour. So this man, Jeremiah Calvin Lanfier, he's 48 years old, and so he, he goes on Fulton Street, which was a very uh, a key place in the business district, and he handed out these handbills, and he planned to have the prayer meeting in the, in the headquarters of a church, a church denomination-type building, from 12 to 1 from, on Wednesdays, one, one day a week. And so on... Just before noon on September the 23rd, 1857, he went, he opened the doors of the church, and uh, out of a population at that time in New York City of over a million, he sat there. By 12.30, one other man came up the steps. And then within a few minutes, four other men came, and so they had a total of six, and they prayed. He had real strict guidelines. No prayer could last over five minutes, uh, no, no, it, it was every five minutes they would read another verse. You, you were supposed to play, pray briefly, and they really stuck from 12 to 1. You could not go over time. And so these six men joined him to pray. The next Wednesday, at the end of September, 20 came. The third week, between 30 and 40 came. By that time, they were so encouraged, they said, let's meet daily. And so on Thursday, after that third meeting, they began to meet every day, and the crowds began to increase. And by the following Wednesday, oh, by the way, here is the room. That's the room where they would meet. 
And that's him sitting by himself. These are the best pictures I could get off Google Images, I'm sorry, but it gives you an idea. But after about three and a half weeks, they began to grow into the hundreds. And by mid-November, okay, that's seven weeks after they began, they were attracting over 10,000 businessmen. And these people were meeting daily, quote, confessing sin, getting saved, praying for revival. Now here is how you know it's revival because the same things began happening, reports coming from New York, California, Florida to Maine, people of all class and standing from judges to college students to housewives to servants to businessmen. At times, the public schools had to close in order to pray and seek God. And this peaked in 1858, so it went on for about a year. It continued even into the Civil War. Camps had great revival meetings. We know that over 150,000 were converted in the Confederate Army alone. In Britain, at the same time, almost a million people joined churches in 1858. That was just unheard of. Now, let me go back to New York City. J. Edwin Orr, in studying this, he relates, there's some fascinating stories that come out of this. And I've tried to do as much research as I could to make sure they weren't made up (laughs) and that they are accurate. Uh, One was a visiting merchant who had come to New York City, and he was selecting goods when noon came. And uh, he asked the man tending the store, the wholesaler, to work through the lunch hour. And the man said, no, uh, he, he could not. He said, I can't help that. I have something to attend that is of importance, more importance than selling merchandise. I must attend a noonday prayer meeting. He said, it will close at 1 o'clock, and at 1 o'clock you come back, and then I'll fill your order. They both attended the meeting. The visitor was converted. He returned to Albany, New York. He began a noonday prayer meeting in the state's capital. I like this one. It's the story of a European cargo ship. It was boarded by the harbor pilot. You know, the pilots get on and guide them into sailing into New York. This was during the awakening. The the pilot was a Christian who had boarded the ship. He began telling the captain and the crew what was happening in the city. Before they docked, the majority of the crew had professed faith in Christ. At one prayer meeting in Kalamazoo, Michigan, they would read prayer requests. People could give requests, and often the requests were to pray for unconverted friends and family. And the request was read out in this prayer meeting in Kalamazoo, Michigan, And here was the request. A praying wife requests the prayers of this meeting for her unconverted husband. And before they began to pray, a burly man stood up and said, I am that man. I have a praying wife, and this request must be for me. I want you to pray for me. And it said, no sooner had he sat down than another man rose up with sobs and tears to claim, I'm sure that I'm that man, and I want you to pray for me. Within a few minutes, three other unconverted husbands had stood and asked for prayer. Churches benefited greatly from the revival. At its peak, it's estimated that there were 50,000 converts a week happening. During that two-year period of 1857 to 1858, 10,000 people were joining churches weekly. Sunday schools flourished. And we look back in America and think that the awakening, the third great awakening from 1857 to 1858, brought 
at least a million new converts into American churches. And it revived over four million persons present before the revival. And there was a resurgence of evangelism. Now, just a few other things. That's a picture when the, you can't see it, I'm sorry, but that's just a mass of people outside at noonday during one of the prayer meetings on Fulton Street. And that, that's the end uh, of that. So let me close with this. We're out of time. That was what, uh, 100, 150, 153 years ago. And I struggle, I really do, like many of you, I long to see revival, but there's something inside of me almost saying that couldn't happen today. And, and I have to ask, could that happen at a local school? At Westside or Central or First Presbyterian Day School or Mercer or Wesleyan or anywhere else in, in town? And if we are adamant that we don't think it can happen, I think we're basically denying the sovereignty of God. Because unlike some other awakenings, no person could be pointed to in 1857. or eight, There was no central preacher. There was no personality. This was all just the movement of the Spirit of God. Yeah, there were lay leaders and some pastors involved, but, but it was obvious it was just a, a sovereign work of God. Do you believe that what happened in 1858 could happen again here in Macon, Georgia? Or that what happened in the town of Samaria with that woman could happen here? I just want to leave you with exhortation that may God fill our hearts until they overflow, that we might believe that what God has done in the past, he can do today and tomorrow. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this example of where there were simple people, simple Christians, that there's no indication there were extraordinary gifts that only one out of ten million was blessed with, but just uh, common Christians like us who longed to see you work in a special way, and they they were committed enough at the start just to commit an hour a week to pray toward that. We pray that you might send awakening uh, that would not glorify individuals or, or churches or denominations, but it would be obviously a sovereign work of your spirit where tens of thousands of people might come to professions of faith in Christ, where believers might repent of sins and and be recommitted, and we pray that you might be pleased to do that in our lifetimes. In Jesus' name, amen.